hearts are warmed. I sure enjoyed uh, the singing. Thanks, Steve, for the good uh, words and the good uh, leading that you did. For those of you that uh, knew my son, Wade, he would send his greetings, but he's definitely out of here and uh, involved up to his earlobes in that that he was trained for at the Master's College, and that is business. And as a dad, uh, I would want to express both on behalf of my daughter, Lee, and son, Wade, our appreciation for all that they got here at the Master's College. I do want to greet you on behalf of our student body and faculty at the seminary. We're 20 miles away on the other campus, but we're still one family, almost like siblings, a brother and a sister. Our paths don't cross often, but you're always in our prayers, and we're especially thankful for God's great blessing on this campus this semester. With the dramatic increase in your enrollment, Dr. Stead told me over 900 uh, with our uh, daytime residency program and the degree completion, uh, God has done a good work. And we're especially thankful for the 40-some young men that are on our campus now who graduated from the Master's College. One out of every five students at the seminary has uh, previously graduated from the college, and we could not be more delighted. As a matter of fact, some of you I know are coming down tomorrow. It's our seminary for a day. Alex Montoya is preaching in chapel, which should be an exciting time. You've had Alex here in the chapel, I know. And uh, visiting in all of our classes and a great uh, pizza lunch with the student body. And it should be a wonderful time. If you didn't know it was uh, on and would still like to come, please, uh, y'all come. Uh, we'll make room for you and would uh, love to have you. Every time I walk on this campus, I reflect back to my own collegiate days, which uh, were three decades ago. 1962 to 1966, I spent on the campus of one of the great universities in America, the Ohio State University. Now, those were wonderful days. I was uh, big time into football, and those were the days of Woody Hayes. It was uh, a legacy of football, the likes of which Ohio State has not seen since. Unfortunately, uh, we will not be at the Rose Bowl this year. Penn State kind of uh, took them to the cleaners. The Ohio State University was no uh, bastion of fundamentalism in those days, and uh, I wasn't a Christian, so I fit perfectly on that pagan campus. I like to hang out with uh, the football players, had a, a great time with them, although I wasn't on the football team. And uh, in those days, the most popular course on the Ohio State campus was Bible 101, which is kind of a surprise, I know, to everybody. And it's not because uh, Buckeyes are necessarily spiritual. As a matter of fact, somebody said Buckeyes are nuts with no commercial value. Uh, anybody here from Ohio? A couple of Buckeyes are here. That's good. Well, Bible 101 was the favorite course on campus, and the reason that it was the favorite course was uh, the prof did not take attendance. Uh, there were no papers to write. There were no books to read. And the only real assignment in the class was to take the final exam, and he'd given the same final exam 20 years in a row with only one question. And the question was, discuss the missionary wanderings and journeys of the Apostle Paul. And so I, along with my football buddies, uh, faithfully cut class, uh, every time we consistently were absent from that class, the night before finals, we thought we'd really dig in. And after uh, rummaging through the fraternity files for a hard 15 minutes, we thought we were ready to go for the exam and wrapped it up and uh, sort of partied that night. And 8 o'clock the next morning, we showed up in a huge lecture hall. In those days, there were about 30,000 uh, men and women on campus, and it was nothing to have a class of five or 600. And it was something like the setting that we've got here. And uh, like all good athletes, we sat in the back row, uh, just all the way in the back, as far away as we could get from the pulpit. 
or lectern because that wasn't really why we were there. We'd studied hard. Uh, we thought we had aced the exam. And uh, he started with the blue books, and uh, so far, so good. And then the exams from the front to the back, and as the exams started to come back to us, we could hear, oh, no. Good night, nurse. And when we got the exam, we found out why all the moaning and groaning. He changed the exam question. It was now critique Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, I wrote all that I knew. I put my name and box number, closed the book, and up to the front, along with the rest of the students, plopped it down, and uh, was ready to leave. And I looked back, and the starting right tackle, we used to call him Meathead, was uh, back there on the back row, and he was writing as fast as he could write. And everything he knew about anything could have been put on the first page of the blue book. And he was into this thing. I mean, he was breaking out into a sweat, writing as fast as he could write. Everybody wondered, what in the world is going on? Meathead of all people? And so we hung around. And, of course, the prof had the easiest grading job that he's ever had in his life. I mean, how long does it take to put a zero on top of the paper? And he had done all of the papers, and they were on the desk. And we hung around for two hours. And Meathead wrote for the full two hours. He went through five blue books. Can you imagine that? Critiquing Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. When he was all over, he walked up, put it on the prof's desk, and we were kind of out in the hallway looking in, and it took the prof 20 minutes to grade Meathead's exam. I mean, he actually wrote something that was readable. And when it was all done and they put his exam down, we rushed in, opened it up, and would you believe it, Meathead got an A? And here's how he began his exam. I'm a humble guy, so who am I to critique Jesus? I'd rather discuss the missionary wanderings and journeys of the Apostle Paul. See, you thought athletes were dumb, didn't you? Every time I tell that story, my wife says, you tell it so well, they're going to believe it's true. And there are many elements of that story that's true, but not all of them, and I'll let you figure out the true from the false. Well, we want to turn to the Word of God this morning, and uh, at the encouragement of one of the faculty members here, uh, they've encouraged me to address the subject of thinking Christianly, thinking Christianly. And we want to turn to Matthew 16, verses 13 to 23 this morning. We'll be looking at several texts, but we want to begin in Matthew chapter 16. It's a familiar text, and uh, I just want to kind of walk and talk my way through it. Remember, our theme this morning is thinking Christianly, the mind of a believer from both God's perspective and from Satan's perspective. Beginning in verse 13, as I read, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Uh, There are quizzes and exams on this campus, and there were 2,000 years ago at the hand of the Savior. And it was a fairly easy quiz, and they responded in verse 14, and they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. That's not too hard of a question to answer. It's a public opinion poll, and those were some of the answers that were given, the most frequent. But he turned to them, and he turned on them, and he said, but who do you say that I am? That's another question. Not what do other people say about me, but what do you say about me? You've been with me, you've lived with me, you've prayed with me, you've watched me do miracles, you've listened to my preaching, and 
teaching. And Simon Peter stepped up to the plate, and he answered, and he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there must have been a pause for a moment before Jesus responded in verse 17, and it was an amazing response. Blessed are you, Simon Barjonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you are blessed. The answer is right. And the only reason you have the right answer is because God revealed it to you. And that is, man, in the best of his thinking, apart from the revelation of God, would never get right who Jesus Christ is. As a matter of fact, the Jews, for the most part, who had the revelation of the Old Testament, missed it completely. Uh, Peter was at the top of his class. It was a tremendous buildup by the part of our Lord. Peter, above all, you're blessed because God has revealed this to you. Now let your eyes slip down to verse 21. Uh, Jesus changes subjects, not who am I, but he's dealing with the question, why did I come? And it says from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. He must be killed and be raised up on the third day. A new dimension to the ministry of our Lord. They thought of him as the Messiah. They thought of him as the Christ. They thought of him as the coming king. They thought of all of the glory, the fulfilled promises. And all of a sudden, Jesus throws them a curveball. And that is, he's got to suffer and he's got to die. He must be humiliated. And in the back of their own mind, they must be thinking, if that's the way he's going, that must be the way we're going. And this deal wasn't supposed to turn out that way. And so Peter, in verse 22, having been tremendously let down by the thought that Christ would be killed rather than he would reign, took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? The creature is rebuking the Creator. And he said, God forbid it, Lord. God, do not let this happen. This shall never happen to you. Now, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there was a lot of compassion in the heart of Peter. Why would he want his best friend in life to die and suffer? Uh, Jesus was something more than an average human being. That shouldn't be the end of his life. Uh, he ought to, to reign and to rule. makes perfect sense to me. It's logical. It's compassionate. It has a, a good ending. Uh, Peter willing to step up and do for Christ what he can't do for himself. But as we see in verse 23, Jesus called it an absolute major first-class foul-up. And we'll see why in verse 23. He turned to Peter, and rather than saying, Thanks, Peter, I'm glad you're my friend. Uh, thanks for thinking ahead and being concerned for me. Rather than saying any of that, he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> we say, Whoa! What's he mean by that? He doesn't mean that Satan invaded Peter. Peter's not indwelt by Satan. And uh, Satan all of a sudden uh, didn't appear as Peter. Read on and we'll discover what he meant by that. He says, you're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, Peter. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but you're setting your mind on man's. The point that he makes and the reason that he calls Peter Satan is he's telling Peter, you're thinking just like Satan thinks. You're setting your mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. Origen, the third century church father, paraphrased it this way. 
Peter, your place is behind me, not in front. It's your place to follow me in the way I choose, not to try to lead me in the way you would like me to go. Peter had lordship backwards. Peter had exchanged the revelation of God for the best reasoning of man. He rejected man's thoughts about the identity of Messiah, embraced God's revelation, and received the blessing and commendation of God. And he turned right around moments later, rejected God's thoughts, and that is, I must go to the cross, and there I must suffer and die, and substituted his own thoughts for those of God, and Jesus soundly condemned him. And we ask why. Why? Maybe you've never thought about it, but if Peter's wish had been granted, then Peter was calling for his own eternal damnation and that of all the elect and all of humanity. If Christ had not gone to the cross, we all would be bound for a Christless eternity. If Peter was calling for a counterfeit kingdom, a kingdom composed of pairs only if Christ didn't go to the cross. The truth is that Peter was aiding and abetting the enemy and speaking as a spiritual traitor. Why? Because he rejected the revelation of God he embraced the best reasoning of man, and when he did, Jesus said, you're setting your mind on the things of man, Peter, and not of God. And you know, we're just like Peter. Every time we set our mind on man's interest and not God's, every time we indulge the flesh rather than yield to the Spirit, every time we seek our own will and not God's, every time we desire our own pleasure and not God's, Every time we crave man's glory and not God's glory, every time we substitute our ideas for God's ideas, we're just as guilty as Peter was. And we're just as deserving of Christ's commendation, get thee behind me, Satan. The truth of the matter is our rational minds, even redeemed rational minds, don't always see the reality of truth as God designed it in its depth and in its fullness. And Satan... Very real, very alive, our adversary, Peter told us that in 1 Peter 5.8, roaming to and fro throughout the countryside, even up and down Placerita Canyon Road, and very active on this campus, he's on our campus also, has just pulled Peter into what I call the scheme of rationalism. The scheme of rationalism, basically defined, tells you that it's okay to substitute human reason for simple childlike faith anchored in God's Word. That's an impressive lie. It's okay. It's all right. Now, there's nothing wrong in substituting the best that the mind of man can produce in place of that that God has spoken and that that we need to simply embrace with simple, childlike faith. Several years ago, I was invited to speak at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And uh, during the Q&A, one of the gals in the back raised her hand kind of sheepishly and she said that uh, her roommate was engaged and in the midst of, of their talking together had uh, confessed that she had an ongoing immoral physical relationship with her fiancé. Uh, these were two Christian gals, but had justified it by saying, we're in love and we're going to get married. And the question the girl asked me, was it right or was it wrong? That's a good question. And I suppose if I thought about it, I mean, they are going to get married. Why not? they are in love. Isn't that an expression of love? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, uh, we need to know if we're compatible before we kind of finalize this deal and we're stuck with each other for the rest of our life. 
What if we're wrong? That's the best of the thinking of man. And it's fairly convincing until it's put up alongside the thinking of God. The thinking of God is that he saved us and it's will that we be sanctified, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. And that is that it's inappropriate to be engaged in a sexual relationship outside of marriage. And so I, I, I gave her my 30-second message on sex. Uh, it's the only message I have. It only takes 30 seconds. Uh, there are only three questions you have to ask. If you can answer yes to these three questions, you can have all the sex you want. Are you ready to go? Number one, to be between a man and a woman. That eliminates an awful lot that's going on. To be between a man and a woman. If you can say yes to that, so far, so good. Some people are waking up, I can tell, in the back row. <laughs> Question number two. Is it between you and your marriage partner? And that's where most of you will fall out. And thirdly, for those of us that are married, is it for the gratification of my marriage partner? Now you can take everything the Bible says about our physical being and its sexual expression and boil it down to those three principles. Between a man and a woman, it's to be with your marriage partner only, and it's to be for your marriage partner's gratification. That's the revelation of God. And so my answer to that young girl on the campus up north was, that's wrong, it's sin, and it's rebellion against the truth of God. Uh, I didn't have to feel embarrassed about my answer. I didn't have to back away from it. I didn't have to be fearful of any challenge. That was the pure revelation of the Word of God. That dear gal who was engaged, who was in love, and who thought she was doing the right thing had fallen prey to the scheme of rationalism and had substituted the best thinking of man for the revelation of God and by faith embracing it uh, as a child. Let me see if I could boil down what I want to say about Matthew 16.23, and then I want to take us to another text. Uh, you can study from Genesis to Revelation, Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, and ask what in the world is Satan doing in the hearts, the minds, and the lives of believers today. And it all can be boiled down to one simple statement, and that is the chief activity of Satan in the lives of Christians is to cause them to think differently than God's Word. And if he can cause you to think differently than God's word, you will ultimately act disobedient to God's will. Boiled down into a simple statement that's the heart of what Satan's doing. And we're going to see in a moment that the battlefield today, the spiritual battlefield, is not for your soul, it's for your mind. And if he can capture your mind, he's got the rest of you. And if he can cause you to think differently than God's word, then he'll cause you to act disobediently to God's will. Thomas Watson, who's my favorite Puritan preacher. He was sort of the Chuck Swindoll of his day. He was a man of few words, which was refreshingly different. And he had an extraordinarily colorful pen, put it this way, and I quote, he says, this is Satan's masterpiece. If he can keep them from the belief of the truth, he is sure to keep them from the practice of it. Now, that is to say, if you want to be and do who God wants you to be and what God wants you to do, it's got to be framed and it's got to be driven by the revelation of God as found in the Word of God, not by our own human musings that edit the Word of God by adding or deleting. Maybe you'll remember the name uh, René Descartes, the famous French mathematician, the man who uh, came to the conclusion that the only sure thing in life was doubt. Uh, he came up with the uh, memorable uh, thought of life, I think, therefore I am. 
I think, therefore I am. It's the ultimate form of intellectual idolatry. It rejects the mind of God, and it allows us to worship at the altar of our own thinking. I'm not sure if you've thought about it very much, but uh, God is very different than we are, and I know we can go through the attributes of He's eternal and we're not, and so on and so forth. God looks at you and I differently than we look at each other. We look at each other and we measure each other by what kind of clothes we have or what kind of credentials we have or what kind of haircut we have or how much hair we have or don't have or what kind of shoes we have or what we've accomplished in life or what kind of car we have or whatever, where we come from. But the Bible says when God looks at you and me, he looks on the inside. He looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart, it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says that God thinks differently than we do, and God acts differently than we do. God has an utterly, absolutely different response, a different approach, and different understanding of all of life. And so we're not surprised if man's thinking is different than God's thinking. The issue is, uh, which thinking will we choose? Which thinking will we embrace? Which thinking will frame and define our life? There was a day in the life of Israel when they decided that the God of truth was to be rejected, that the truth of Psalm 119.160, the sum of thy word is truth, was to be rejected. Listen to God's response to life in those days. It's an amazing interchange. He said, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. Who's directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His Counselor has informed Him? With whom did God consult, and who gave God understanding, and who taught Him in the path of justice and knowledge, and who informed Him of the way of understanding? Was it you, Israel? Was it you over there, you priest, or... You prophets, were you there before God created? Did you write the manual on creation so he'd get it right? And God responds and he says this, Behold, the nations, all of the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn or its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now you can take the, all that God created and add it up, but in comparison to God himself, it is absolutely nothing. It's like a drop in a bucket. A speck of dust on the scales. They are less than nothing and absolutely meaningless. Now that's really the beginning point of understanding who we are in relationship to who God is. And that is, apart from God, we are nothing and apart from the thinking of God that we embrace as revelation, our thinking is totally contrary to God's, and therefore it's a lie, because everything he's revealed is the truth. Now, the key to all of our life from a human perspective and by creative design is the brain. Now, for most of us, it weighs about uh, three pounds. It's made up of billions and billions and billions of cells. It consumes about 25% of our oxygen supply, amazingly enough. Uh, for those on a college campus, it handles about 10,000 thoughts daily. It regulates over 103,000 heartbeats every 24 hours, controls over 600 muscles, and coordinates over 23,000 breaths of air a day. 
Uh, without it, we're uh, dead. Uh, without it, we're absolutely nothing. Now, I want to take our thinking one step further about the mind, and I want to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. We've seen Peter at his best. We've seen Peter at his worst. At his best, he embraced the revelation of God, and Jesus said, you're blessed, Simon Peter. When he rejected the revelation of God, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Let's take it a little further. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 Paul, for 11 verses, has been telling the Corinthians that if someone has repented, they are to forgive. And then in verse 11, he tells them why he gave that instruction. And it is in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan. I like the way the NIV put it. It is that uh, Satan would not outwit you or outthink you or mentally checkmate you in the game of life. In order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. The word for schemes is a word that uh, deals with the mind. It's uh, noemata. It's a word in military terms that would be strategy. Do you remember in Ephesians 6.11, it tells us we're to stand firm against the schemes of the devil? It's a different word. Methodia is the word that's used there. It's another mind word, but it refers to... Tactics, if we're thinking militarily. The broad concepts of Satan are those that are termed noemata, and those that are tactics, the particulars are methodea. And it tells us that when Satan aims his fiery darts, they're aimed at our mind to cause us to think differently than God's Word, which will then direct us to act disobedient to God's will. Now, it sounds like I might be taking ice to Eskimos by coming on a college campus and addressing the subject of thinking. But I'm not addressing the subject of mere thinking. I'm addressing the subject of thinking Christianly. That is, what makes you different from all of the bright young men and women on some of the prestigious campuses around America whose IQ is at the Mensa level? And what will distinguish you in the years after you graduate? from all of the Nobel Prize winners and the great thinkers and the great artists and the notable intellectuals of our days and days past. It is that while they are thinking, you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are being taught on this campus in all disciplines, all the way from the arts to athletics, to think Christianly and to think with a mind that's committed to the revelation of God. It's amazing how much the Word of God says about our mind, and I just wanted to alert you to a couple of uh, key texts. Why don't you stay in 2 Corinthians 2, and let me just uh, read quickly some and remind you of others. I trust you'll take time to go back and uh, think through them all. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says, We're destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Philippians 4.8, Paul says, think on these things, and all of the attributes are those attributes of uh, godly thinking. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul says that we're to not set our affections on the things of earth, but rather we're to set our mind on the things above. We're to be thinking of heavenly things. Peter, no surprise to any of us in light of what we read in Matthew 16, says, gird your minds for action. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, divides thinking and life into one of two categories. It says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul expands a little bit. And he says, You as believers have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge. That is what you know, according to the image of the one who created him. Philippians 2.5 sums it all up and it says, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Decidedly, Christianity is a thinking religion. Decidedly, Christianity is living out what we first have thought, and it either will be driven by the best thinking of man's mind, or it will be driven by the mind of God as recorded in his revelation in the word of God. Satan, by the way, spends most of his time trying to influence the thinking of believers. Did you know that? It's the, the world is easy. You might have thought some time, but the Bible says that the mind of the unbeliever is corrupt. 1 Timothy 6.5 Reprobate, Romans 1.28 Defiled, Titus 1.15 Blinded, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, Darkened, Ephesians 4.17 and 18 Deceived, Matthew 22.29 Dead, we already read that in Romans 8, 6, and 7. And futile and empty, Ephesians 4, 17. Now, the very nature of man in its depraved and sinful form in which we come into the world has already directed the mind of man to reject the thinking of God and to embrace the thinking of man with the ultimate insult, the ultimate blasphemy told in Romans 1, 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. The ultimate perversion of the mind is to reject the truth of God for the lie of Satan and worship that that has been created by God and reject God altogether. Well, you might be asking, why make such a big deal about all this? Why, why come and preach on thinking Christianly? What's the problem? A man by the name of Harry Blamires almost 30 years ago wrote a book. Uh, the book was entitled, uh, The Christian Mind. Listen to what he said about England 30 years ago, and I would suggest that what was true of England 30 years ago is true of our own country, and even true of the Christian community in our own country today. He says, and I quote, There's no longer a Christian mind. And there's still, of course, a Christian ethic, a Christian practice, a Christian spirituality. As a moral being, the modern Christian subscribes to a code other than that of the non-Christian. As a member of the church, he undertakes obligations and observations ignored by the non-Christian. As a spiritual being in prayer and meditation, he strives to cultivate a dimension of life unexplored by the non-Christian. But, as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He accepts religion, its morality, its worship, its spiritual culture, but he rejects the religious view of life, the view which sets all earthly issues within the context of the eternal, the view which relates all human problems, social, political, cultural, to the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith, the view which sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy and earth's transitoriness in terms of heaven and hell. The man has embraced religion, but he's rejected the dimensions given to it by the revelation of God. We ask, what's the solution? Blamires go on. He says to think Christianly, and this is the heart of it all, to think Christianly is to think in terms 
of Revelation. Listen, you don't have to have a Mensa-level IQ to think Christianly. You don't need to be the next Nobel Prize winner in some discipline to think Christianly. You don't have to have a Ph.D. to think Christianly. What you need is to be redeemed and have a sold-out commitment to embrace the revelation of the whole counsel of God and by it understand both God and life. Listen, some of the most brilliant scientists the world has ever known in terms of empirical research and ability to reason have missed it altogether and are the most vocal and ardent evolutionists of our day. There are no more foolish men and women in all of the world who reject God as the creator and embrace some random process as their explanation of how the world and humanity and all that's in it came into being. My little three-year-old grandson knows more about origins than most PhDs in America. And I don't say that to uh, embarrass or inflame the PhDs that embrace evolution, but it is just to simply tell them the truth. That is, if they don't begin and end with God, if their thinking doesn't start with the Word of God and end with the Word of God, then they're not thinking Christianly. And if they're not thinking Christianly, they're thinking foolishly. And if they're thinking foolishly, they're thinking a lie. What's the solution? He says to think Christianly is to think in terms of revelation. For the secularist, God and theology are the playthings of the mind. But for the Christian, God is real. And Christian theology describes his truth revealed to us. For the secular mind, religion is essentially a matter of theory. For the Christian mind, Christianity is a matter of acts and facts. And the acts and facts which are the basis of our faith are recorded in the Bible. Why was Peter rebuked by the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he rejected the revelation of God. And Jesus said, you've set your mind on the things of man and not of God. Peter was thinking decidedly in an unchristian way at that moment of time. Let me give you one more illustration and then see if we can wrap all of this up and stop on time. Back in Genesis chapter 3, it's a classic passage. It's a defining passage in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. You know the scene well. It's the garden, Eve and her encounter with Satan. Uh, Eve had had the perfect revelation. It was an ideal environment. There was no sin. They knew all that they needed to know. And one day a beautiful creature who was more crafty than any beast of the field, showed up and he engaged the woman in conversation and he said in verse 1, Indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Uh, just asking, a little bit of a Columbo approach to theology. I'm not going anywhere with this. It's just uh, a little philosophical exploration of the epistemological possibilities of the creation. Is that really what God said? And being as bright as Eve was, and having been well taught by her husband, she said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. That's exactly what God said. Next question. Verse 4. So the serpent said to the woman, having tried to plant a seed of doubt, moves into second gear called deceit, and said, You shall surely not die. I want to tell you, as one who has explored all of the earth, that there's another philosophical possibility. 
While it's logical that you might die, it's also logical you might not die, and that's where I'm going to land. You surely shall not die. Now, God had told them in no uncertain terms to the day in which you eat, dying, you shall surely die. Point being, you eat of that fruit, and it's all over. There are no logical possibilities that you might live. There are no exceptions. There are no exculpatory clauses. Satan went on to say, For God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And basically, that was true. And in a sense, there's truth in verse 4. You surely shall not die. Because they ate of it, and they didn't immediately. Satan forgot to give them a timeline. They didn't immediately die physically. But the minute they ate, they died spiritually. The idea of death is separation. They were immediately separated by sin from God. They ultimately died physically, along with the whole human race. What did Eve do? She's faced with a dilemma. God says, on one hand, I will die. This guy, who sounds pretty bright, says, I won't die. She says, empirical research will solve the problem. I will figure this out with my own mind. And so in verse 6, the first piece of empirical research that we know of was conducted by the human race. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it has physical value. So far, so good. And by the way, if something is good for food and has physical value, it must not be all that bad, huh? Secondly, it was a delight to the eyes. It had emotional It's got physical value, emotional value, intellect. We must have misunderstood God, or God must have gotten it wrong, because if something is that good and has that much value, it certainly wouldn't kill us. So she had to make a decision. Do we eat it? Or do we not eat it? We don't know how convinced she was, but she was convinced enough to conduct an experiment. And so she ate it. And what happened? They died. Who was right? God. Who was wrong? Satan. What happened? Satan put doubt and then deceit in the mind of Eve. And she said, I'll decide the truth of this matter with my own mind rather than the mind of God, which she already had. And she ultimately rejected the revelation of God, embraced the best thinking of man, and the human race has been fraught with sin ever since. It's the most tragic mistake that's been made in all of human history. Why? Because she put herself in the center of her universe rather than God. I've got a, a dear friend by the name of John Willett who served in the United States Navy with me back in the 1960s. And he was on a destroyer off the coast of Vietnam as they would do the beans and bullet delivery routine back in those days. And he was just a brand new naval officer, just kind of green. And one night he was on the bridge of the ship, and it's very frightening on the bridge of the ship as a new man there when you're operating with other ships, particularly an aircraft carrier, which could slice through a destroyer like a cold knife could slice through butter. And uh, in the middle of the watch, about 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, a big uh, order came over the loudspeaker from the carrier, and all of the ships were to go to uh, new stations relative to the carrier. And when that happens, everybody starts moving. And they're moving at about 15 to 20 knots, and it's absolute chaos and pandemonium. And the one thing you want to make sure is you don't get anywhere near the carrier. Whatever you do, right or wrong, don't get near the carrier, because it can kill you. 
And so they made their move, and my friend's on the bridge of the ship, and as the ships were moving, he noticed that his ship was in a direct line of collision with the carrier. And he thought he'd wait a few minutes, and maybe it wouldn't be that close, and the longer it went, it was predicting uh, absolute collision. That carrier was going to cut that ship in half. And he began to get kind of frightened, and when he got frightened enough, he called the captain, who was asleep on the in his stateroom behind the bridge, and they woke the captain up very, very quickly because it was a grave emergency. And he came out, and he was trying to get his night vision, and it was still uh, kind of groggy. And he looked out, and he saw all the lights, and they told him that they were about ready to collide with the carrier. And uh, in his loudest voice, he cried out to my friend, Willet, where are we? And, and my friend is just, he's scared spitless now. Here's the carrier on one side and the captain on the other, and it's a no-win situation. And he's heard to say, Captain, we're right in the middle of our radar scope. Now, every ship in the United States Navy is right in the middle of their own radar scope. All of life revolves around them. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. Peter was in the center rather than God, and he rejected God's revelation. That's what happened to Eve. She was in the center, and she rejected all of God's revelation. And thus, the problems that they encountered. If you'd permit me one final illustration, I think you know it well enough that we need not turn there. And that is to think for a moment about our Lord in Matthew chapter 4. He's again encountering Satan. Satan's encountering him. And on three occasions he attempted to tempt him and to get him off track. And do you remember how our Lord responded on all three occasions? Our Lord was no mean thinker. He was a bright guy. And how did he reason with him? Was it philosophically? Was it logically? Was it with the latest uh, religious thinking in the hottest journal of the day? No, you'll remember on three occasions, boom, 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 Satan gave him an offer, and Jesus rejected it based on the truth of God's Word. Based on the truth of God's Word. And why did Jesus succeed and Eve and Peter didn't? Just one simple truth. He thought Christianly. He thought revelationally. He thought biblically. He looked at life with God as its author. He said, God knows better than I, and therefore the revelation of God drives my thinking and not the reasoning of man. How about you? You're a student at the Master's College, chapel three times a week, with some of the finest Christian instructors in your disciplines. Are you thinking Christianly? You say, well, how do I know how well I'm doing? Let me tell you what a man wrote 300 years ago. It's the finest thing I've ever read about testing our minds to see if we're thinking Christianly. He said we can test ourselves by asking whether our spiritual thoughts are like guests visiting a hotel or like children living at home. There's a temporary stir and bustle when guests arrive, and yet within a little while they leave and are forgotten. The hotel is then prepared for other guests. And so it is with religious thoughts that are only occasional. But children belong to the house. They're missed if they don't come home. Preparation is continually being made for their food and comfort. Spiritual thoughts that arise from true spiritual mindedness are like the children of the house. They're always expected and are certainly inquired for if missing. And the question for you and me is, are we thinking Christianly? Are we thinking spiritually? Are spiritual thoughts like guests that come and go? Are they like children of the house? We care for them with 
the greatest of attention to detail. They're always expected, and they're certainly inquired for if missing. I've just returned home from a trip to both Ukraine and Belarus, and while I was there, I heard of the finest example of thinking Christianly that I've ever heard of in my life, and with that, I close. There was a dear Belarusian woman who recently was saved. She was married to a a drunken atheist who detested the name of Christ. After her salvation, she was told by the church that she needed to declare her testimony in the waters of baptism, and so she excitedly told her husband about her conversion and the fact that she would be baptized. And in a drunken rage, he forbid her to be baptized, told her he wouldn't allow it, and if somehow she was, if she was baptized, he'd kill her. She went ahead and planned for the baptism. They just do it once a year. They're out in a, in a public forum in a river or in a lake, and she knew the date, and she planned on it, and she told her husband she planned to go. The day came, and in a drunken fit, he shoved her into the apartment, locked the door so she couldn't get out. She lived in a second-floor apartment. She finally managed to get a window open and jumped out of the second story of this apartment because she knew she needed to obey our Lord in the waters of baptism. Uh, Praise God, she didn't break any bones, just kind of uh, bruised and scratched up and, and off to the baptismal ceremony. She went and she was baptized to the glory of God. And as they do that, they give their testimony. And she told about how she was converted, about her relationship with her husband, what her husband had said, what her husband was done. And her final words before she emerged from the water is, I've now obeyed the Lord in baptism and I'm now willing to return home and allow my husband to kill me. Maybe an extreme example. But that woman was thinking Christianly. And that's God's desire for you and me to think like the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that in the midst of all that we've been privileged and blessed with, uh, the campus of the Master's College, the Master's Seminary, all of uh, the fine education, all of the wonderful instructors, that we would look to you and you alone, to your word and to no other source as that that would give us absolute truth, that would direct every step of our life, would dictate every word of our mouth. And I pray, Lord, that we would successfully resist every temptation that Satan would bring our way to think differently than your word. And in all cases, we would reject it and thus act obediently to your revelation to us. Lord, make us a people who think Christianly and then act obediently. We pray it would be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.